Section 8 of Mother Earth, Volume 1, Number 2, April 1906. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marriage in the Home by John R. Cariel. You remember Punch's advice to the young man about to be married. Don't. There is a jest nearly half a century old, and yet ever fresh and poignant. Why? Can it be that the secret, serious voice of mankind proclaims the jest truth in masquerade? Can it be that marriage, as an institution, has indeed proved itself in experience such a terrible failure? We worship many fetishes. We of the superior civilization, and the institution of marriage is the chief of them. Few of us but bow before that, before that and the home of which it is the foundation. And I know what scorn and obloquy and denunciation await that man who stands unawed before it, seeing in it but an ugly little idol. And I guess what will be dealt out to him who not only refuses to bow the head, but openly scoffs. And yet I'm going to scoff and say ugly words about this fetish of ours. I'm going to say that it represents ignorance, hides and causes hypocrisy, stands in the way of progress, drags low the standard of individual excellence, perpetuates many foul practices. Let me admit at the outset that I recognize in the institution of marriage a perfectly legitimate result of the working of the law of evolution. Of course it is, and the same may be said of everything that exists, whether good or evil. Every vile and filthy thing, crime, disease, misery, are all equally legitimate products of the working of this law. Evolution is simply the process of the logical working of things. It explains how things come to be, and there is nothing in the nature of the law to enable it to give to its results the hallmark of sterling. A thing is because of something else that was. Marriage is because of a primeval club. Man craved woman, and he procured her. Considering the beginnings of the institution of marriage, it is interesting, if nothing more, to consider the efforts of the priest to give it an attribute of sanctity, to call it a sacrament. In truth, marriage is the most artificial of the relations which exist in the social body. It's a device of man at his worst, a mixture of slavery, savage egotism, and priestcraft. It is indicated by nothing in the physical constitution of either male or female. It is an anomaly, a contract which can be freely entered into by the most unfit, but which cannot be broken, though both parties wish it, though absolute unfitness be patent, though hell on earth be its result. The pretense must be abandoned that men and women marry in order to reproduce their kind. Nothing could be less true. Marriage legalizes reproduction, but is not caused by desire for it. Marriage is the hard and fast tying together of a man and a woman without the least regard to moral or physiological conditions. Marriage may be for pecuniary gain or for social advancement. It may be at the will of a controlling parent or, more commonly, for St. Paul's reason, that it is better to marry than to burn but never for the reason that the parties to it are fitted to each other for parenthood. That supreme consideration not only does not enter into either the preliminary 
or afterthought of the matter, but is even held to be an indecent topic of conversation between persons not already married to each other. The constituents of the average marriage are a man overstimulated sexually by mystery and ignorance, and a woman abnormally undersexed by the course of self-repression and self-mutilation, which have been taught her from her earliest childhood as necessities of modesty, purity, and virtue. And we are asked to believe that out of such elements are created the best foundation for a race or nation. Surely, surely, that combination of conditions is the best for a race or a nation which produces the best individuals. And quite as surely, we should strive to bring about those conditions which tend to produce the best individuals. Then there's home. Home, sweet home. The perfect flower, we are told, that blooms on the fair stem of marriage. Yet, it is the very citadel of ignorance when it should be the school in which are taught the beautiful phenomena of physical life. Home, where the simplest, purest facts of life are converted into a nasty mystery and deliberately endowed with the characteristics of impurity and sin. For what else is the meaning of that solemn formula, which most of us have been taught, that we were conceived in sin? What else is the meaning of the hush and blush that go to any reference to sex, sign, or manifestation of sex? Is it not awful beyond the power of words to express that a man and a woman come together in ignorance and beget children who are not even to obtain the benefit of such knowledge as their unfortunate parents pick up by the way, but must themselves begin the most responsible functions of life, not only in equal ignorance, but with an added load of misconceptions, sex superstitions, immoral dogmas, and probably physical disabilities? A short time since a father was speaking to me of his son, 14 years of age, and plainly at an age when some of the beautiful phenomena of sex life were beginning to crowd upon him for notice. I asked the man if he had talked with his son about the matter. His answer was peculiar, only in that he put into words a description of the attitude of the average parent. Talk to him about that? Not I. Let him learn as I did. No one ever told me. But someone had told him, as his unpleasantly reminiscent smile advised me, he had been told by ignorant companions, by ignorant servants, and quite likely by books, whose grossness would have been harmless but for the child's piteous ignorance. No, the man would not talk with his son about such things, but he would go into his club and talk into the small hours over a glass of whiskey with his friends there, turning the beauty and purity of sex manifestation into shabby jest and impure ridicule. He would exchange stories based on sex relation with any stranger with whom he might ride for two hours in a smoking car. Every man knows that I speak well within bounds. And the girl child, what of her? Does her mother, the victim of misinformation and no information, of misuse and self-mutilation in the sweet privacy of this home, which is called the cradle of peace and the nesting place of purity, save her by taking warning of her own ruined life and giving her the benefit of such little knowledge as she has gained in physical, mental, and moral misery? We know she does not. On the contrary, 
The same terrible old lies are told. The same hideous practices are resorted to. And another pure creature is launched into that awful life of legalized prostitution, which is called marriage. Motherhood is woman's highest function, and moreover, it is a function which it is unwise not to exercise, for it is infinitely more perilous for a healthy woman not to be a mother than it is for her to bear children. Motherhood, too, is the most markedly indicated function of a woman's body. She is specialized for it. It is the thing indicated. And yet we never say to a woman, be a mother when you will. We hold up our hands in horror at the very thought of motherhood itself, and we say, marry, marry anything, get another name for yourself, merge your very identity into that of some man, get a home, never mind about children, you don't have to have them, they have nothing to do with your respectability, is it not so? Is it not so that that woman who prefers her own name and her freedom and who exercises her highest function of motherhood thereby becomes a thing of scorn and contumely? And yet, how in this world can a woman do a finer, wiser, braver, truer thing than to bear a child in freedom by a carefully chosen father? It is true that we have moralists who urge wives to breed for the good of the country, but even they, while declaring that is the duty of women to have large families, roll their eyes in horror at the thought of a woman exercising her plainest right without first having some man, whose only interest in the matter is his fee, say some magic words over her and her master. Oh, that marriage ceremony. And is it not pathetic to hear the women, dimly conscious of their backbones, declaring that they will not promise to obey? They will promise vehemently to love and honor, which they absolutely cannot be sure of doing, but they refuse to obey. The only thing they could safely promise to do, and which, in fact, most of them do, for writhe and twist as they may, defy never so bravely, the conventions of the world are against them, and conform they must. Down, down they sink until they are on their knees in the mire of tradition, their heads bowed to the ugly little fetish. A woman may be a thousand times the superior of her husband, and yet she must be his slave. And what puerile fables, what transparent lies are told to reconcile the poor slave to her lot? A man's rib? and she's the weaker vessel? Nevertheless, she is the power behind the throne. And if the man possess her, does she not equally possess him? Is not monogamy the mainstay of our morals? Is not God to be thanked that he has given us light to see the horrors of polygamy? Oh, that shocking thing, polygamy. How the husbands of the land rise up to defend their firesides from it. No smoots shall get into our senate that virtuous senate. Why, if every practicing polygamist went home from the Congress, there would not be a quorum left to do business. Monogamy. Why, it's the most shocking phase of the hypocrisy due to marriage. There is no such condition known in this country. Of course, there may be sporadic cases of it, but that is all. If monogamy be the practice of the men of this country, why the hundreds of thousands of prostitutes, 
Why divorces for adultery? Why those secret establishments where unhappily married men indemnify themselves for the appearance of monogamy by an association which can be ended at will? Whence come the mulattoes and the half-breeds of all sorts? Who's so credulous as to believe the fable of monogamy? What has monogamy or polygamy or polyandry to do with this matter? I assume that it is undeniable that motherhood is woman's most manifest function. If that be so, how can there be any more immorality in the exercise of it than in the process of digestion? What could be clearer than that a woman has the inherent right to bear children if she wish? And there's nothing in experience or morals which demands one father for all her children. It should be for her to say whether she will have one father for all her children or one for each. And if the question be asked how, under such conditions, the interests of the children would be safeguarded, I ask if they are safeguarded now. The right-minded man provides as he can for them, as would be the case always, while the wrong-minded man does not now provide properly for them. Besides, is the mother not to be considered? Do we not all know of women who in widowhood take care of their families? Do we not know of women who take care of their husbands as well as their children? Women, of course, should in any case be economically free. But at least let them be sex-free. Let them decide for themselves whether they will have many or few or no children. Teach woman to be economically independent. Give her the opportunity for full knowledge of all that pertains to motherhood. Make the motherhood a pure and beautiful manifestation of physical activity, if you will, but without forgetting that it is only simple and natural. Avoiding that hysterical glorification of the function in poetry and the hiding of it in actual life as if it were an unclean thing. But the important matter is to understand that a woman has a right to bear a child if she wish. Nothing is more distinctly pointed out by the constitution of her body, and therefore it is impossible that there can be any immorality in the exercise of the function. To put my idea in as few and as bold words as I can, motherhood is a right and has no proper relation to marriage. Marriage is a purely artificial relation, and not only is it not justified by its results, but distinctly it is discredited by them. By it, a man becomes a vile hypocrite since he loudly avows a moral standard and a course of conduct which in private by his acts he denies and puts to scorn. By it, a woman becomes a slave, giving up her rights in her own body, submitting to ravishment and becoming the accidental mother to unwished, unwelcome children. By it, children are robbed of their plain right to the best equipment that can be given them and which cannot be given them under the prevailing system. It is only when a woman is free to choose the father of her child that the child can hope for even a partial payment of the debt that was due it from its parents from the moment they took the responsibility of calling it from the nowhere into the here. This doctrine of the responsibility of the parent to the child is comparatively new. It goes neither with marriage nor with the home. The old and current notion is that the child is a chattel. Abraham never offers an apology for making little Isaac carry wood and then mount the sacrificial pile. Indeed, we are asked to marvel at the heroism of the father. Then we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
as if the child were the property of the parent. And yet there must always have been naughty children asking pointed questions, for it was long ago found necessary to try to scare them by a divine fulmination. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long. It seems that even so long ago, parents were afraid they could not win honor from their children. Abraham's place was on the pile, just as it is the place of the modern parent who looks upon his child as his chattel, disposing of him as he will, arbitrarily making rules for his conduct, which he would not dream of observing for himself, stifling his natural demands for knowledge, converting what is pure and most beautiful in the world into a mire of filth and ignorance, willfully robbing him of his birthright of individuality by forcing him to conform to methods of thought and conduct, which his own experience tells him no man can or does conform to from the moment he wins his freedom or learns the hideous lesson of that hypocrisy, which he is sure in the end to discover that his father practices. What right has any father to make a sacrifice of his child? What is his title to the love or gratitude or self-abnegation of his child? Is it that the child is the unconsidered consequence of the legal rape of some poor woman who's been unfitted for the office forced upon her by a life mentally dwarfed, morally twisted, and physically mutilated? Is it that the child is hailed out of nothingness to be inoculated, perhaps with germs of disease in the first instance, and then half-nourished for nine months in a body which has been robbed of its vitality by the mutilation and torture to which it has been subjected at the behest of fashion? The highest duty of a parent is to so treat his child that it will enter upon the struggle of life prepared to obtain the utmost happiness from it. If anyone fancies I've been too severe in my strictures, I would ask him to read what Mrs. Gilman has to say on the subject of home. It is true that she does not come to the same conclusions that I do. She would have women economically independent, and she would have children taken care of by those especially fitted for the task, leaving mothers and fathers free to go their separate ways. But how could there be separate ways so long as the slavery of marriage remained? Woman must be not only economically free, but altogether free. As I've said, motherhood is not an affair of morals. It is a function. Marriage, on the other hand, is a matter of morals, and hideously immoral it is, too. Then why not have motherhood without its immoral, artificial adjunct, marriage? You see, I do not ask for easy divorce as a solution of the problem of marriage. I set my face sternly against divorce. I'm one with the church in that. I only demand that there shall be no marriage at all, that there shall be no fastening of lifelong slavery on woman. Let woman mother children or not, as she will. Let her say who shall be the father of her child and of each child. Let motherhood be deemed not even honorable, but only natural. Can anyone believe that if men and women were free to decide whether or not they would be parents, they would not, in the end, seeing their duty in the light of their knowledge, fit themselves for parenthood before taking upon themselves its responsibilities? I would like to say that I have no fear of the odium of the designation of a conoclast, nor do I quake lest someone triumphantly asks me what I will put in place of marriage in the home. 
as well might one demand what I would give in the place of smallpox if I were able to eradicate it. I am not concerned to find a substitute for such perversion of sex activity. If men and women choose to live together in freedom, fathering and mothering their children according to a rule grown out of freedom and directed by expediency, I fancy they would be, at least, as happy as they can be now, tied together by a hard, unpleasant knot. And if an economically free woman chose to have six children by six different fathers, as a wise woman might well do, I believe she could be trusted to secure those children from want quite as well as the mother slave of today who bears her children at the will of an irresponsible man and then, often enough, has to take care of them and him too. Wealth protects and animates art and literature as the dew enlivens the fields. Nonsense. Wealth animates art and literature as the whistle of the master animates the dog and makes him wag his tail. End of section eight. Recording by Lynn Handler.